Would you stand with me this morning? And I'd like to read together in unison. Actually, today I think I'll read it to you. You just follow along, and I'll read to you Hebrews 12, 1 through 17. Hebrews 12, 1 through 17. And then I'll pray and ask the Lord to bless our time of study. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before Him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider Him who endured from sinners such hostility against Himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by Him. For the Lord disciplines the one He loves and chastises every son whom He receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them, but He disciplines us for our good, that we may share His holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift up your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. That no root of bitterness springing up and causes trouble and by it many become defiled. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal, for you know that afterward when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, 
though he sought it with tears. Father, we, we come to your word this morning, your unfathomable word, your glorious word, your powerful word full of insight. It discerns us. It pierces to the depths of our soul. Father, search us, know our hearts, try us, know our thoughts. Comfort us in your grace. Expose us, convict us, restore us, heal us. For your glory and our good, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you. Please be seated. The main idea of this text this morning comes from verse 3. If you're there in Hebrews 12, you can look at verse 3, and it's really the first words. Consider Him. Consider Christ. It comes from this text. In all your suffering, consider Him. In all your suffering, consider Him. This message is not mine. I want you to know that up front because I do not want to plagiarize. This message was a message that I heard, my wife heard, we both heard at the uh, conference in Grand Rapids on sovereignty and suffering. It was one of the most impactful messages I've ever heard in my life. And I couldn't wait. I, I heard and I'm like, I am going to re-preach that message to you. Because I want you to hear what I heard. So this was a message preached by Dr. Joel Beakey at that particular conference from Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 3. And it was 10 points, so I'm going to divide it up into two sermons and uh, share half of it with you today and half of it with you, Lord willing, on the last Sunday in November. We're going to do something different as Jeremy announced next Sunday. I have to let you hear this because it did my heart so much good. Consider Him. And before I introduce this, I do want to recommend some books to you because suffering is a very difficult thing to navigate in the life of a Christian. And so there's three volumes that we do have in the bookstore that I certainly want you to know about if you don't already. One is called Trusting God, and it's written by a man named Jerry Bridges, an author we've talked about. But this is one of the best volumes that I have ever read, and there's, a, there's actually a study guide that goes with it that you can work through uh, that helps navigate the weight of suffering. The subtitle is Trusting God Even When Life Hurts. So that one I, I highly, highly recommend. Another one, this one, I listened to during the days of when I was bedridden with COVID, those, those months that you, we all remember. Uh, this was so helpful because in those, in those moments where, where you're just alone with your mind, doesn't anxiety ha have an opportunity to run wild? And so, because you're thinking about, you know, will I ever get out of this? Will life be different? 
what's going to happen to my family? There's so many anxieties when you are in a place of absolute weakness that just want to come and crashing into your mind. So this was probably, well, I had, there was uh, a dear family in our church that uh, I won't name recommended two sermons for me to listen to over the course of that time. That, those two sermons were a milestone for me and this book as well, Anxious for Nothing. So I would commend that to you. And then, there is nothing more valuable in, and that's really what this message is largely about this morning and the last week in November, there, there is nothing more productive to think about in times of suffering than God Himself. And so this book, Our Awesome God, by John MacArthur, is also available in the bookstore. It's an easy read. It's a very wonderful volume to help ourselves to meditate on the character of God. All our suffering has its origin in the fall, right? We, why do we all suffer, generally speaking? It's because in Adam, we sinned. And through sin, death came into the world. And everything that leads to death. There can be a correlation at times between our sin, specific sin, and our suffering, but it's not a one-to-one correlation. And we learn that from a book like Job. All of his friends came to him and they were making that mistake of saying, well, if you're suffering, then there's only one explanation to your suffering, it's your sin. And God dealt with them. Just And Job made a sacrifice for them. And so it wasn't the one suffering there that was suffering because of his sin. It was the ones who were judging the one suffering who were found to be in sin. So though sometimes that is true, it's not always true. But all affliction is grievous. We know that from 1 Peter chapter 1. It's weighty, it's Grievous, though we are grieved by various trials. And so because it is that way, we're really nowhere in Scripture called to ask for suffering. Have you noticed that? We're not called to pray, God, please cause me to suffer. And we're not called to talk about with God. We're asking how much suffering or when we're to suffer and or to what degree. Those are things that we should leave completely to the wisdom of God. In fact, the prayer that we are called to pray is, Father, in this great trial and suffering, please keep me from the evil one. The Lord's Prayer. It's really not the amount of suffering that we receive that is the most critical issue for Christian growth, but how we respond to that suffering. We must learn as children of God to respond to our suffering in a way that glorifies Christ. And that's a very difficult thing to do, to learn how to do that. So how can we respond rightly to whatever is suffering the Lord allows in our lives? How can we honor Jesus in our suffering How many times have each of us prayed something like, Lord, help me to live through this affliction 
in a way that honors You. Please grant me wisdom. Grant me strength. There's so many various prayers. I, I, I imagine as I'm saying these words at the moment, you're thinking back even to situations that you found yourself in in the sovereign care of God and prayers that you have prayed. I don't know that there is a more wonderful text to turn to in learning how to respond from the heart to suffering better than Hebrews 12, this precious text. It's an amazing thing how it frames our experience of suffering. You can see from the outset that we are to look to Jesus Verse 2, look to Jesus in our suffering. Consider Him, verse 3, in our suffering. And it also speaks of our suffering in terms of God's discipline. And it begins by showing us in verses 5 and 6 and 7 that the Lord disciplines the one He loves. If the Lord disciplines the one He loves and His children... And He doesn't discipline those who are not His children and those He doesn't love in a saving way like that, then what is our response to suffering then all of a sudden? It's like, well, I hope I suffer a little bit then. Right? Do you see what I mean? How it frames it that way? All of a sudden, suffering is like the badge that says, I am a child of God. And all of a sudden, it becomes a desirable thing to some degree. It calls us to endurance because as we suffer, God is treating us as sons. He's disciplining us. He's changing us. He's making us holy. It's for our good that we may share His holiness. You, you, you look at a phrase like that and you say, God, I want you to do me good. God, I want you to make me holy. How many of you have asked, God, please make me holy. Please make me like Jesus. That doesn't happen without fatherly discipline and suffering. Impossible. Absolutely impossible. We should all get it out of our minds if we ever think that we will become like Jesus and share His holiness without suffering. That doesn't happen. I know we want it. Like the song we sang, the second song we sang, we, we, ha- we, we concoct these schemes with God and we say, well, maybe if I just read my Bible and pray, all the change I need will happen through that. It doesn't work. We have too much fleshliness about us. We need such dramatic change. We need our character to be different. And again, if we follow the way of Christ, what was the way that Christ walked? The way of suffering. Christ-likeness can only be demonstrated through suffering. So if we want to become like Christ, we must also suffer as He suffered. And so then, if we know that through it we share His holiness, then verse 11, it's certainly not pleasant. It relates with us in that so very well. Everybody can say a hearty amen at the first part of verse 11. It says, for the moment, right in the moment of the suffering, it's painful. Yes, amen, it's painful. That's not being, that's not being scrubbed away as if it doesn't matter. It's painful. 
It's very painful. And it's certainly not pleasant. But then it gives us hope because it says later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Well, do I want righteousness? Yes, I do. So then train me, Father. And it gives us an exhortation. If we believe all that, then verse 12, lift up my drooping hands then. Because suffering makes you feel like that, doesn't it? It's just like, my knees are growing weak underneath me. I have no strength. And the Father says, well, lift up your drooping hands. Strengthen your weak knees. Make straight paths for your feet. So that we may respond to the discipline and not be put out of joint, but healed. Right? Because God will train His children. So if we don't respond to His, His, His discipline through suffering in a way that is, that is submissive and responsive, well, He will work further. And we need, he, will, he will do what it takes in our lives to form the holiness in us that we need to see Him. Isn't that an interesting verse there, verse 14? Without which no one will see the Lord. I need a holiness if I'm going to see the Lord. I need to have sanctification produced in my life so that I can prove that I'm a child of God, justified, and then will have access to the kingdom of heaven. And that's a work that God does in me. So how? How do we respond in our suffering then? So if our suffering is medicinal and not judicial, if God is not judging us, punishing us for our sin, whether He is healing us, then we can respond to it this way. We have struggled so much to cope with affliction, particularly right in the midst of it, right? It's hard when you're in it. It's easier to, you know, it's, it's like the, the saying we say, things are easier said than done, right? That's easier said than done. It, you, know, you look at a trial coming and you're like, all right, I've got this. And you look at a trial past, you're like, I'm thankful for that. But right in the midst of it, not so easy. I'm sure we've all grasped at many things to help us deal with our suffering when we're in the midst of it. We've even received much advice from other people, yes? And not all of that advice has been good. How many of you have thought, well, how am I going to get through this? How am I going to handle this? What do I need to be thinking about? How do I do this? And, and we've maybe run on a certain thought for a while only to find that this isn't sustaining me. I need something more. I need something bigger. Yeah, we might take temporary comfort in some earthly things, you know, someone's visit and a hug and so on. And those things feel good for a moment, but we need, we need something that is long-term, that is really solid. And helpful, productive, right? We need that. What do we do? Not all the things we've tried or been told have been very helpful. There's one thing that can help us far more than anything else. Maybe, maybe more than anything else combined to endure suffering and respond rightly to suffering. And it's what this verse says. Consider Him. In all your suffering, consider Christ. As Jesus has suffered, so must we suffer following behind Him. 
In that suffering, we must consider Jesus. Focusing on Christ in all of His glory is the best way that I as a believer can cope with all of my suffering. Christ, you could say, is a diamond of many facets to whom we may look to find all that we need, all that we need in suffering. Suffering is primarily a a, a battle where? Of the heart and the mind, isn't it? And that's why we can look to Him and be completely victorious. I'm not saying this is easy. I'm not saying that you won't have lapses. There are times of tremendous suffering in which we find it very difficult to focus on Christ. But in the end, we do confess our complaining and our discontent and our lack of faith. And finally, again, we turn to Christ. Like David. David was like this. I think of particularly Psalm 42, 43, where he would would say, Why are you what? Cast down, O my soul. Why are you disturbed within me? And he would express his complaint to God. And in the end, he comes back to the truth and he says, why are you cast down on my soul? Why are you disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise Him. The help of my countenance, my God, my salvation. That's, that's the, the way of the sufferer. That's the way of the sufferer. When we understand that Christ is the fountainhead of all things for the Christian, He's the source and the agency and the end of all things, we turn to Him. We rest in Him. We depend upon Him and His strength. We find that He will do in us above and beyond all that we ask or think. Like like Ephesians 3.20 and 21. Remember those verses? He is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think. That's true in suffering. And then we'll turn and look to the trial gone past and we will be filled with thanksgiving. How many of you have experienced a trial that's gone past and you look back on it and you say, I do not regret going through that trial. I'm thankful for what God did. I remember in the midst of a trial thinking, I just don't know how I'm going to be thankful for this later. This was way too hard and way too dismantling of my life. I remember feeling that way in moments of maybe hours or even days of weakness. But looking back on it, God brings you to the place where you do say, And not not just as a cliche, but you say from the heart, that brought more good for me and those around me than I could have ever calculated. Thank you, God. Thank you. That's the way it is. When in your life, God has taught you the most about yourself and Himself and the Christian way to heaven, through a trial, you're grateful. Isn't that when you've learned the most about God and about yourself in the Christian way? That's, we, we, we learn more from the rod that God uses to strike us than we learn from the staff He uses to comfort us. We need to have this Christ-centered view in our, all our suffering. 
We need to encourage one another to look to Jesus. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, right? Look to Jesus. You need to remind that of one another. Sister, you know what you need right now? To look to Jesus. Brother, you know what you need right now in all of your suffering? You need to look to Jesus. In all of your suffering, consider Him. So, what? What should we consider about Christ? And there's ten things. I'll give you the first five today, and the other five, Lord willing, the last Sunday of this month. Number one, in your suffering, consider the passion of Christ. Consider the passion of Christ. What do we mean by passion? Well, that's the, that comes from the Latin word for suffering. The sufferings for Christ. Consider the sufferings of Jesus. Gethsemane. Place where he prayed for you and agonized over what was coming. Gabbatha, the place where he was judged falsely and beaten. And most of all, Golgotha, the place where he was crucified. Have you, have you taken much time in your suffering to consider the sufferings of Jesus? And isn't that what this text says? Consider him who, what? Endured from sinners such hostility against himself. The text is literally commanding you to think about the suffering of Jesus in your suffering. Think of the emotional suffering of Jesus. There's no way we can exhaust and explain all of the sufferings of Jesus. We talked about this a few weeks ago on a Wednesday evening. Think of the emotional sufferings of Jesus. Betrayal from Judas. Betrayal. Jesus was a real man. He felt all of this deeply. Betrayal. Denial. Peter, his lead disciple, denying him as if he never knew him to a servant girl. Abandonment. When Jesus was suffering, all his disciples did what? forsook him and fled. Mocking. He was told things to his face that were absolutely emotionally abusive. False accusation. Was Jesus falsely accused? How much he was falsely accused. In fact, every accusation was false because there was no sin in him. Reviling, nakedness, to be put on a cross, absolutely naked, which the place of the cross in the days of Jesus was a place by a common thoroughfare. And so you'd have, you'd have families walking by, mothers, you know, putting their cloaks around their children's eyes as they walk by and saying, oh, Make sure you don't be like those guys. You don't want to have that end. And Jesus standing there on the cross, naked, 
being falsely accused, assumed of something that he didn't do. Spitting in his face. You ever had somebody spit in your face? On top of his emotional suffering, he physically suffered. Physical suffering. His beard was ripped out of his face, the Old Testament tells us. He was hit by the soldiers as they made a game of worshiping him in a mocking way. A crown of thorns was placed on his head and the thorns were beat down into his skin. He was whipped. He was stretched out on a cross. He was crucified. He was exhausted. He was thirsty. He was weak. He was suffocating on the cross. I I can't explain these things to you in reality, but they're real. He He suffered emotionally. He suffered physically. He suffered spiritually. How so? The sinless Jesus had placed upon him the guilt of all who would ever trust in Jesus. Do you know what it's like to feel guilty? To feel the stinging pain of conscience knowing that you did something sinful, wicked, twisted to someone else that you can never take back. It's done. You can't undo it. And all the guilt that just keeps you awake and gnaws at your soul. Jesus felt the spiritual suffering of having our guilt laid on Him. And not just one person's lifelong guilt, but all of those who would ever believe in Jesus, all of their guilt placed upon Him and the Father charging Him with that guilt as if He did it. Could you imagine this? The sinless one would never tasted such sin. Not one second in his life. Divine suffering. The worst of all. To have in that moment of emotional suffering and physical suffering and spiritual suffering, the divine suffering of having fellowship removed. No fellowship with the Father whom he had known great intimacy with for all of eternity. To have that removed. The abandonment of the Father's love. And in full measure, the wrath of God poured out upon Him. The the punishment of sin poured out upon Christ. And all of that in complete darkness on the cross. Right? It's darkness. We don't like darkness. Without the sun to shine upon Him. Jesus bore all of that and far more than I could ever represent completely on the cross. And in reality, you know what we're seeing there? We're seeing what God thinks of sin. Our sin. My sin. Your sin. That's the kind of suffering that our sin deserves. And listen, dear ones, listen. His suffering, His great suffering is the reason that you and I suffer as little as we do. Our suffering is nothing compared to His. Jesus' suffering was so great, and yet it was totally undeserved. For He was the sinless Lamb of God. Yours And my suffering is so small and far less than we deserve. 
Do you realize that, beloved? When you look at the cross and you look at your own suffering, you see there, oh, that's what I deserve, but this is what I'm receiving, and it's for my good? All he suffered was for our sin. And listen to this, we will never, child of God, daughter of God, son of God, we will never be abandoned or become the object of God's wrath in our suffering because He was abandoned by God and made the object of His wrath in His suffering for us. That is one of the most comforting thoughts as you look on the cross. So what does that do for us in our suffering? Before we complain, what must we do? our hands on our mouths and consider the suffering of Jesus. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12 verse 12 or verse 14 through 16 gives us the result of his suffering is that he could become our high priest since then we have a high priest who has passed through the heavens Jesus the son of God let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Christ knows the depths and far more depths of suffering than you do. He knows your suffering. He's walked it already. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Consider Him who endured from sinners such hostility against Himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted in your struggle against sin. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Since Christ suffered like this, He as your priest can carry you through your suffering. He endured much greater suffering than you. He will help you through yours as your mediator, your priest, your Savior. Go to His throne of grace. He knows. He understands. He sees it all. So in your, in your suffering, consider the passion of Christ. And dear ones, I want to call you to this this morning as we walk through these. Let's not be forgetful hearers of the Word. Will you make these points a life-altering paradigm for all of your suffering? Sometimes I'm sure you've wondered, what should I be thinking about? This. This. Think about this. If you're in the midst of suffering, it, the suffering that you're going to go into, consider Christ. It will be your comfort and strength to carry you through. Number two this morning, consider the power of Christ. Consider the power of Christ. Christ, the God-man, received infinite power to endure sufferings on earth in our place. As the God-man, He was, like it says in John chapter 3, He had the Spirit of God without measure. Jesus, the God-man, had all power 
to endure suffering in our place. And through that power, He endured such suffering perfectly. Right? Therefore, through the merit of His sufferings, He received the royal authority and power in heaven to rule over your suffering. To carry you through those sufferings. And to bring you out of those sufferings. Have you ever thought about it like that before? That Jesus is in perfect control of your suffering. He earned that right. He's the one seated at the right hand of God. He is perfectly navigating your suffering. He has authority over it for your good. Matthew 28, 18-20. All authority on heaven, in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And the text closes with, Behold, I am what? I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Or Ephesians 1, 20 and 21, which says <clears throat> that He worked in Christ, this power, this working of His great might, that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in heavenly places, far above all rule and all authority, and all power, and all dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the age to come. And He put all things under His feet, and gave Him to be the head over all things to the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. Jesus has authority over your suffering. He has the royal authority and power to rule over your suffering. So, there's, a, there, there's, a, there's an implication to that truth. In other words, don't be alarmed by your suffering. Don't be alarmed by your suffering. You remember the words of Isaiah 43, 1 and 2? I'll read it to you. But now, thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, He who formed you, O Israel, He's speaking to His redeemed people. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are Mine. When you pass through the waters, what? I will be with you. When you pass through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you what? You will not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. So don't be alarmed by your suffering. You will not drown. You will not be burned. But look to Him for strength. 1 Peter 4.12 says that same thing. Don't be surprised. Don't be surprised. And don't be ashamed. You ever feel ashamed in your suffering? The kind of suffering you have to bear? Oh, it's such a shameful thing. Was Christ, did Christ have shame in His suffering? Oh my goodness, He did. Most shameful suffering ever. Like we talked about. To, 
to the degree of being hung naked on a cross, blamed for everything he couldn't do. What, did, what was Christ's response to that shame in his suffering? What was it? He despised it. He thought nothing of it. Squashed it down. Shoved it away. Why? Because he knew God's purposes in it. He knew what it meant. He knew where it was going. He despised it continually. Despising. Notice I-N-G. Kept on despising the shame. Because your kind of suffering sometimes can make you feel shamed by the people around you or even before God Himself. Keep despising that shame and know that God is for you in it. The magnitude of suffering can make you feel ashamed. I'm always feeling this way. It's so great. I can't, I can't, I can't put up with this. It's crushing me. It's too heavy. It's too much. Or the duration of suffering can bring you a sense of shame. People are always asking me how I'm doing. And I can never answer. I'm doing great because I'm not. I'm doing horribly. It feels shameful, doesn't it? So many ways we, we get this sense of shame between people. Because Christ has been given the rule, the royal authority over our suffering, He's managing it, both the kind and the magnitude and the duration, and therefore we must despise the shame that comes with it, knowing Christ's purposes and heart toward us in that suffering. You see, God tailor-makes your afflictions according to your need and your shoulders. Look at, look at 1 Corinthians 10. You have to understand something about the Greek language. Here, look at the second word of the verse, temptation. And then the word there, um, I don't know what, there's the word tempted. He will not let you be tempted. And then in the last part of that verse, but with the temptation. The word for temptation, tempted, temptation, it's, that word is interchangeable with testing and trial. It's very narrow which way it goes. It's dependent completely upon the context. So the testing and the temptation, this is, this is what James deals with in James chapter 1 as well. With every trial, God is testing you. With every trial, Satan is tempting you to sin. But it's the same event. Right? It's the same trial, the same circumstances. And from that, Satan is tempting you to sin. God is testing you for maturity. And so even in this text, this doesn't necessarily only talk about specific temptation to sin. It includes that, but it also speaks of trial, weighty, difficult, long trial. So there's no temptation. There's no test. There's no trial that has overtaken you that is not what? Common to man. That's a blessing. Because there's many others who have gone through it before us and with us who can be used of God to strengthen us when we're in it. And ultimately, God is faithful. Therefore, He will not let you be, te be tempted beyond your ability. 
take that to heart. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. What does that mean? That means God, as your Father, is bringing you to a certain, He has brought you already to a certain place of spiritual maturity by His grace, by His strength. He knows what you're ready for. He knows. He knows you. This, this all authority Christ, this all powerful Christ, knows because He's the one who's your shepherd navigating your spiritual progress. He knows exactly the testing level that you're ready for, and He won't give it to you above where you are in your spiritual walk with Him. That's what he did with his son. His sons, notice in the life of Christ, the son's own testing and temptation increased until finally he was given the weight of what? The cross. That's why it says he learned obedience through the things that he, what? Suffered. And so for us, God is teaching us, he's maturing us, and he's only giving us the, the weight of testing that corresponds to the state of maturity that he has brought us to. So he won't test you beyond your ability. Isn't that fantastic to know? He won't. He will only give you what he has prepared you for. And so with the temptation, he will give you the way of escape in himself so that you'll be able to endure it. The promises is that he won't give you more than you're able to bear. You think you can't go on one more day. You think you can't go on one more hour. Maybe you think you can't go on one more minute. But what's the truth? You can. Consider the power of Christ. Ask Him to give you strength to bear it. That Trial is tailor-made by God for your shoulders. A largely unknown Puritan named George Downing said this, the Lord measures out our affliction not according to our faults, but according to our strengths. And He looks not at what we have deserved, but what we are able to bear. Oh, that is good, isn't it? He measures out our affliction not according to our faults, but according to our strength. And He looks not at what we have deserved, oh, thank God for that, but what we are able to bear. This is why Paul could sing in prison. In your weakness, He was made strong. Right? That's what Paul knew. 2 Corinthians 12, 9 and 10. In his weakness, God's power and strength was perfected. So plead for that. Plead for the power of Christ. Live out of God's strength. It is God's gift to you. When the Word of God comes to your mind in the midst of your suffering and strengthens you, there is no limit to the end. No end to what you can suffer. You ever thought about it that way? With God's power, there is no limit and no end to what you can suffer. That's how the martyrs could endure all the way to the stake. Depending on the Almighty in this way, there is no end to what you can endure. Can endure. How He will bring us through, we surely will not know. We've all thought that too. We looked ahead and we see what's before us and we're like, I don't know how this is going to happen. You don't have to know. We don't need to know. All we need to know 
is His promise and His power. He Himself said, I will never leave you nor forsake you so that we may boldly say, what shall I fear? What can man do to me? Look over. You may still be in Hebrews chapter 12. Look at Hebrews 13 where that verse is. I want you to see something. There's something hidden. There's a hidden surprise. 13.5. Hebrews 13.5. I will, it's a quote from the Old Testament. I will never leave you nor forsake you so that we may confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? That, that phrase there, verse 5, I will never leave you nor forsake you. This, this could also go with our next point, and we'll transition into it, but I want you to know it also has to do with Christ's power with us. There is five words of negation at the end of verse 5. I will never leave you nor forsake you. You should see this in the Greek New Testament. It's, I will never, no, never, no, never leave you. It's, it breaks all the rules of grammar. There are five no's. There are five neg- negative words there. That is precious. God is stooping to us and He's saying, you've got to understand something. I will be with you. I won't leave you in this. All of my power is available to you. You are mine. There's nothing to fear. In your suffering, consider the presence of Christ. Consider the passion of Christ. Consider the presence of Christ. Number three, consider the presence, I'm sorry, the power, now the presence of Christ. Consider the presence of Christ. Christ has two places of presence that I want to give to you. One, Christ is at the right hand of God for you. Where is the physical presence of Christ? He is at the right hand of God. And He's interceding every second. There is never a moment that He is not praying for you in your suffering. That's what it says, Hebrews 7.25. He ever lives to make intercession for us. Christ has an infinite capacity to remember all of His people at the same time carrying us on His heart into the presence of the Father for our sustaining grace. Isn't that something? And yet, Christ remembers each one of us and all the many details of our suffering as if each of us were an only child. Right now, He is praying for you. Right now. Right now. Right now. And right now, and continuing, he is interceding for you. There is no doctrine more precious and maybe more underestimated than the intercession of Christ. We make much of his suffering. We make much of his resurrection as we should. But we need to make more of his intercession. John Bunyan spoke of his intersection, intercession, the, the, uh, the author of Pilgrim's Progress, in three sort of phrases. One, he is there. He is there at the right hand of God. Meaning, He is victorious. He is victorious over our sin there. He is over, victorious over our enemies, over the curse, over our affliction, over our death. He is there. Second, He sits there. When He is seated at the right hand of God on the throne, 
He is, he is governing. That speaks to His governing our suffering. Every detail, every minute detail, governing, governing, ruling over everything. And He stands there. He is there. He sits there. He stands there with power to meet your need. Think of the, the risen, ascended Christ rising up from His throne as a king in your behalf to give you all that you need in your time of suffering. He is pleading for you. Think of the martyrdom of Stephen. Remember the uniqueness of that moment? He was being stoned to death for the sake, for the name of Christ. And right before he left this earth, what did he see? The heavens opened, and there was Christ standing at the right hand of God, giving to him everything that he needed in that moment of great suffering and preparing to receive him into the presence of the Father. He is there. His presence is there, interceding at the Father's right hand for you, constantly. He sits there governing over every detail, and he stands there with power to meet your need. Think of the words of Hebrews 5. Hebrews 5 and verse 7. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered, and being made perfect, he became the source. He became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God as a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. He is the ever-living, all-powerful high priest who during the days of his life suffered much and learned perfect obedience. Therefore, he becomes the source of all to you from his place there at the right hand of God. I think of the words, even in we could, I think, legitimately apply the words of Psalm 139 even to his, his intercession. Psalm 139, verses 17 and 18. David says, How precious to me are your thoughts, O God! How vast is the sum of them! If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake, and I am still with you. Isn't that something? Christ standing as our intercessor praying for us in our suffering has unending thoughts of us to care for us and meet our needs. He, in fact, we are with Him on His heart continually. Christ is with you now. Not one will be lost. There's the other part of His presence, His spiritual presence. He is with you right now. He is in you through the Holy Spirit. That's where it says, Hebrews 13, 5 and 6, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Hebrews, or Ephesians 3, 14 through 21, in Paul's prayer, he prays that we would have the faith to comprehend with all the saints two things, that by faith we would know that the Spirit of Christ is within us. Christ's presence within us. 
and also Christ's love for us. And in that, we are filled with all the fullness of God. You look at it, Hebrews 3, 14 through 21. Christ is not only there in the presence of the Father right now, but He is with you right now. The presence of Christ. Consider it. Not one will be lost. Everyone will arrive safely home. John 6, 37 to 40. You can jot these references down. John 6, 37 to 40. Jesus declares there that He came to do the will of His Father and no one will perish. He will raise all of us up on the last day and bring us safely home. Psalm 23. Though I walk the valley of the shadow of deep darkness, what? I will fear no evil because you are with me. John 17, 24. Father, those whom you've given me, I desire that they would be with me where I am to see my glory. You see, there will be no empty chairs in heaven. You realize that? No empty chairs. You know, we sometimes have empty chairs at church and we think, oh, that person, they're carrying a burden right now. They're laid out. They're not well. They're struggling. They're at home today. There won't be any of that in heaven. Everyone that God has called and saved and possessed by His Spirit will be there. You'll make it. You'll make it because of the presence of Christ. Number four, the patience and perseverance of Christ. In all of your suffering, consider Him. Consider His passion. Consider His power. Consider His presence. Consider the patience or perseverance of Christ. It is not so much the intense but short-lived trials that we dread as much as the long-term afflictions that never seem to let up or never end. Or, we, yeah, we don't even have any hope that in this life they will be lifted. Have you had any of those? Do you have any of those now? The long trials. You think you can't go on. You think you won't be upheld. But Jesus, having loved His own, loved them to the end, right? John 13 and verse 1. He will uphold you to the end. Just look back at your life. Remember it in your mind to all those afflictions that seemed overwhelming like that. This is never going to end. You are through them. You are through them. He has held you up through them. You didn't perish. Maybe you felt like David. 1 Samuel 21.7 He says, I will perish one day by the hand of Saul. He was chased by Saul for how many years? 16 years. That's a long trial of being chased for your life. How would you like to have someone just waiting to kill you, trying to follow you, trying to track you down for 16 years? That's what David lived with. And he was discouraged on many occasions, and you know that because you've read the Psalms. But did he perish one day at the hand of Saul? Nope, he didn't. God's covenant promise to him was fulfilled. God kept him and kept his promises, and God will do the same for you. That's his promise. Christ will not deny you in your suffering. Christ will not abandon you in your affliction. Christ will not fail to fulfill the purposes for which he has employed these difficulties. Your afflictions may threaten to alarm you, but they will not harm you. You will not perish by the hand of your sin. You will not perish by the hand of Satan. 
You will not perish by the hand of the world. You will not perish by the hand of your enemy or anything else that you think you might perish by. Christ will bring you through. That's the perseverance of Christ. <coughs> Though through the perseverance of Christ, you will persevere with him. You will be able to say like Paul, by the grace of God, I am what I am. In spite of all your fears, Jesus won't let anyone or anything else have you. Romans 8, 31 to 39. You know that text. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. You see, Noah went through the flood. Israel went through the Red Sea. Joseph went through the dungeon. David went through 16 years of hounding. Job went through loss and illness. And by the perseverance of Christ, you will endure through your suffering as well. You are part of his body. You are his. He is yours. He will never let you go. You will endure in him. And your crosses, you're enduring the light end of the cross. The, the non-meritorious, non-atoning end of the cross is what you carry. Christ carried the heavy end. Through that perseverance, you will be able to crown Christ with glory someday and praise. You will never be plucked out of his hand. John 10, 27 through 30. No one can take my sheep from my hand. I give to them eternal life. They will never perish. In your suffering, consider the perseverance of Christ. And number five, and finally this morning, consider the prayers of Christ. Consider the prayers of Christ. How often did Christ pray for you on earth? Even before you were born. And how often he prays for you now. John 17 is the intercessory prayer of Christ. Read it. Read it this week. That's the prayer of Christ. He prayed. He prayed that you would be kept from the evil one. He prayed that you would be sanctified in the truth. He prayed that you would be kept in, his, in the Father's name. He prayed that you would become one in Christ. He prayed that you would be able to see His glory and the love of the Father for Him someday and to enjoy the love of the Father as He has continually. Christ's prayers will be answered. And he stands at the Father's hand as your propitiation. 1 John 2, 1 and 2. And as your advocate. And as we've said, Hebrews 7, 25, he ever lives. Now that's similar to what we've already said, but here's, here's a little bit of a different point. If this Christ can hear Bartimaeus, blind Bartimaeus in the crowd amidst all of the shouting and all the scuffle and all the noise of the people around him, he can hear that one voice and meet his need. He can hear you now as you pray to him. Now that he is seated and ascended and seated at the Father's side, his full attention is upon his precious people. His ear is bent ready to hear their cry. Think of how amazing it is to be able to pray to him who prays for you. To have the ear of the one who stands to pray before the Father, whose will, whose entire will is done. It's to him you pray. So don't stop praying to him. Bring him all your afflictions. Speak to him as if he knows nothing about you, yet knowing you, he knows everything about you. 
A prayerless affliction is like an open sore ripe for infection. But a prayerful affliction is like an open sore ready for the balm of Gilead, the healing ointment of Jesus' blood. In your suffering, consider the prayers of Christ. In all of your suffering, consider Him. In conclusion, I want to first speak to my brothers and sisters in Christ. Have you been considering Christ like this in all of your suffering? His his passion, His power, His presence, His perseverance, His prayers for you. Or in your suffering, are you grasping for many earthly things, hoping that they will bring you comfort and only finding them to slip through your hands? There are many different kinds of suffering that we endure. All of them are under the control of Christ. Is your heart and mouth filled with complaint in your suffering and therefore you are drowning out the lessons of Christ that your Father would teach you? None of us will be perfect sufferers. There was only one perfect sufferer. Who is that? Jesus. We will fail often, but we can grow by the power of the Spirit. We can grow in how we respond to suffering. And by God's grace, we can move toward Christ in all of our sufferings. Indeed, this is one of the reasons in itself why God ordains our suffering. So that we might be brought to a station of life in which we realize that Christ is the only rock we have. Everything else moves. Even human relationships change. Even our physical health changes. Even, you name it, right? Any earthly thing moves and changes and shifts. Christ does not. And that Christ and all in Him is all that we need. That's why we have trials. So, in all of your suffering, consider Christ. And my friend, if you are not yet in Christ, I have something I must share with you for just a few moments this morning. Has God ordained some suffering in your life so that He might lead you to His Son? So that you might trust in Him and submit to Him as Lord and be forgiven and granted eternal life? God does that too. He will send suffering to people whom He wants to save. He does that. Yes, he does that. Just consider for, exa- for just a moment the gospel accounts, and maybe you don't know these stories. That's okay. I'll tell you just a snippet. Consider the gospel accounts of earthly trouble, healing, and salvation. There was wine that ran out of the wedding in Cana, John 2. And Jesus turned it into wine, turned the water into wine. Why? So that they could see his glory. And his disciples there began to believe in him, it says. So even little trials, little tri- well, you know, for some it might not be at a wedding, run out of wine, that would feel like a little trial. Maybe it's a big one. I don't know. But whatever it was, is a trial. And the end was that the glory of Christ would be seen and belief would grow in the heart. Nicodemus was tortured in his soul. He didn't know how to be certain of entering the kingdom of God. Tortured in the soul. That's a kind of suffering. And yet he came to Jesus. And Jesus showed him how to be born again. The Samaritan woman 
was devastated by her male relationships. And yet it was that very thing that brought her to salvation in Jesus Christ. The official's son was deathly ill. He ran to Jesus. That's suffering. A child's illness is suffering. And yet he ran to Jesus and Jesus welcomed him and he said, please, come with me. Jesus said, I don't need to come with you. Well, he didn't really say that, but he commanded that this distant son somewhere else be healed. And the man ran home. The, the servant met him and said, what time was the healing? And he's like, yeah, that time. And he remembered that that was when Jesus said, your son lives. And he and his whole house believed. That wouldn't have happened apart from that miracle and that suffering. The wedding suffering, Nicodemus suffering, the Samaritan woman suffering, the official son suffering. There was a man lame for 38 years. And after healing him, Jesus said to him, make sure you sin no more so that something worse doesn't happen to you. I'll refer to the, that man in just a moment. Man born blind in John 9, excommunicated from the Jewish synagogue. What happened? He came to Christ. Jesus said to him, do you believe in the Son of Man? And he said, who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? And he worshiped him. I am he. I believe. Right? That's no blindness, no excommunication, no salvation. That's how, I'm not saying that, that God can't save someone by a different means. Certainly he could. But these are the means that God often uses to bring someone to saving faith. And Lazarus. Lazarus was sick. Lazarus died. The sisters felt neglected, didn't they? They felt forgotten, like Jesus didn't, didn't come soon enough. And what happened? The glory of God was put on display. And many believed in Christ. Will you respond to the afflictions like these people? Think of this, dear friend. The lame man who was lame for 38 years didn't believe. He received the healing. He heard Jesus' exhortation. And then he went and told on Jesus to the, to the Jewish leadership. He didn't want it. He was afraid of what people would think about him. He was afraid of what people would think about him. But the Samaritan woman, in all of her shame and guilt, ran around the town saying, Come meet a man who told me everything I ever did. Now that's shameless faith, isn't it? So, there you have it. Who will you respond like today? If you are not yet in Christ, will you, in fear and shame, turn from the salvation that Christ offers? Or will you, like the Samaritan woman, run to Christ and find all of your answers in Him? That's the salvation of God. So even for you, dear friend, in all of your suffering, consider Christ. He's the only one who can save you from your sin and grants you everlasting life. He lived a perfect life in your place. He died on the cross to absorb your guilt and your suffering, your punishment from God for your sin that you deserve, and so do I. And he rose again to grant you everlasting life in the presence of the Father. Will you receive him or will you reject him? I urge you this morning, if that's you, receive Christ. You will find abundant life in Him. Not easy life, suffering life, 
but life that is marked by the grace of God. Let's stand together and we'll pray. Father, we pray this morning that you would teach us to respond rightly to our suffering, to consider him. Oh, and there's more facets of the diamond yet to look upon in a couple of weeks and and for the rest of our lives, endless, endless sides to the diamond of Christ. May we learn to consider him in all of our suffering. We pray this for our progress in holiness and the glory of Christ, we pray in his name. Amen.